The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. We are glad to see you here and abroad, so to speak, internet abroad. So we uh, bring you greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you for participating with us this morning. Our teacher again will be Brother James, and uh, if my guess is right, he'll take us back to Amos. That'll be great. Thank you. Good morning. We will go again now to the book of Amos, and we intend to focus some on chapter 9 in the book of Amos. But I will begin by reading the first verse in chapter 1 to kind of keep us connected together as to what we're looking at here. The first verse of chapter 1 of the book of Amos says, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So that puts us back in the historical context where Amos is and where he is given forth the prophecy. As I've mentioned a number of times, this seems to us to be to have been a long time ago. We're estimating approximately 760 B.C. as a time for this, these series of messages that haven't been delivered. There is something, though, in this book that keeps gripping my attention each time I look back at it. And I'm going to go through here and read small sections that occur throughout. I may not get all of them, but you will see what these are. In verse number 6 of chapter 1, it says, in the first part, thus says the Lord. The same chapter, verse 9 says, Thus says the Lord. In verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord. And also in verse 13, that's just the first chapter. Now, when we look at chapter 2, it says the first line, Thus says the Lord. In verse 4, the same. And in verse 6, the same. And now we'll move to chapter 3. And if I'm, I may be overlooking, but I don't see that particular expression in chapter 3. In chapter, oh yes I do, in, in verse number 11. Thus says the Lord God. And in verse 12, thus says the Lord. And that may be all for that chapter. But it goes on. That's not all that we have here. I'm going to skip ahead a bit. So we skip to chapter 5. In verse 3. And in verse 4. 
It says the same thing. Thus says the Lord. In verse number 16, still in chapter 5, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this. And then in verse 27, the second half of that verse says the Lord. In verse number 8 in chapter 6, thus the Lord God of hosts. And it goes on. Thus says the Lord in chapter 7, verse 17. In chapter 11, I think I, I don't see it right there. But anyway, the, so the point is, these are a lot of expressions saying, thus says the Lord. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is because Amos was a man who, as we have talked about him before, he he was not brought up in the school of the prophets. He was not a professional prophet, as we might consider that sort of a thing. He was a man who had an occupation which didn't have anything resembling what he is doing here in the book of Amos by presenting these messages. He wasn't even from that area. He was from the southern kingdom, Judah. But here he is in the northern kingdom. And he's preaching to the people in the northern kingdom. And he's telling them some, some very heavy things. Very heavy. He's telling them how God is viewing things. And he's saying, as for himself, he has no message. But he has devastating words to deliver. So he's a messenger, not one bearing his own, but he's a one who is bearing the words of the Lord. The importance of recognizing what God has to say cannot be overstated. The importance of responding properly to what God desires also cannot be overstated. Either for those to whom Amos was speaking or to us. So that puts a dramatic challenge to us. And it did to those people to whom Amos was speaking. Because he told them over and over again, this is what the Lord says. They believed that there was a God. In fact, they believed that they were God's special people. He said that about them. And they were. This is an interesting thing because Amos, in all these messages, he's talking about judgment. And he talked about judgment that God would bring to visit those surrounding nations, nations who were enemies of, of Israel, people whom the audience of Amos would have been happy to see 
fall under the judgmental hand of God. But Amos wasn't done. He began now, he focused in on Judah, the southern kingdom from which Amos had come. And he said, well, God has judgment lined up for those guys too. And as we said before, we can surmise that that wasn't too big of an issue for those who were Amos's audience. After all, they were the northern kingdom. And things were looking pretty good for them. They were doing pretty well economically, socially, militarily. They were sitting pretty, pretty, in a good, pretty good spot. But then Amos began to zero in on Israel, the northern kingdom. And he did it with such detail and with such volume that it surpassed what he had to say about all the others. And so now they had a focal point. And so we come here now to chapter 9. And one thing that we can say is this. The, gut, the judgment of God is sure. But a remnant, a remnant will be spared. So I'm going, now, going to now read chapter 9 in its entirety. In the first part, you will see that the focus is on judgment. And then we see in the latter part of the chapter that the theme is different. It's changed. It's, it's not a downward, depressing kind of a message there but rather an uplifting one. And this is all what God is saying. Listen to the message. I'm going to read here, and then I will make some comments on some of the verses here in chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. He says this, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. Now, we will remember that in the first part of Amos, he was saying what we would call oracles. And speaking in oracles, he was just narrating what the message was. But these last three, we see in chapter 7, he says, the Lord showed me. Uh, and then in chapter 8, he said, the Lord showed me. And here he says, I saw the Lord. So we call these vision uh, messages here. But let's read on through. And he says, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with a sword. Pay attention to the words, I will as we read through this chapter. He says, I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away. And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell or Sheol, or the place of the dead, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to heaven,
from there, I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, or Mount Carmel, he says, from there, I will search them out. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there, I will command the serpent. It's interesting, there's a definite article there, and I'll make a comment about that. But he says, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn, all of it shall swell like a river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his lairs in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth who calls out the waters of the sea and pours them out on the earth. The Lord is his name. Verse 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me? O children of Israel, says the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? The Philistines from Kaftor, the Syrians from Ker. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. That's what they say. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles 
and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the traitor grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So the last portion of that is is marvelous indeed. It hasn't come to be. And there are people who are acknowledged in some circles as Bible scholars who would assert that it's not going to happen, (laughs) that it's not going to be. We don't take that position. God said it and we believe it. He's never said a thing yet that wasn't true. Never said anything that will come to pass that will not. And so he said it and it will be. So it's best to be getting the right alignment to what God says and the way he sees it. And then we can understand better. Now let's look again here in the first verse here. He says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, the altar, and he said, in my reading, it seems that there's not complete uniformity in thought as to the reference here. But I'm going to draw attention to this. Now, Bethel has been mentioned And I want us to consider that the altar that is being referenced here is perhaps the altar in Bethel. We noted when we were in chapter 7 that Amos received some opposition. And we see in chapter 7 and verse 10, it says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of, Jer- king of Israel, saying, and then he went on to say the things that he was saying. And in the course of that message, he told Amos that he wasn't welcome there, that the message that he was delivering wasn't welcome there, that they didn't want it. A place that had been named Bethel, the house of God, and the priest there saying, We don't want the words of God, and we don't even want God's messenger here. 
because we deem this to be a place for the king, for his relaxation, his enjoyment. So go away, don't ever come back again. I want us to point us back, though, to 1 Kings and look at the historical context of what has eventuated here at this place, Bethel. We remember that Amos is speaking in the time of Jeroboam. We call him Jeroboam the second. But there was one who we called Jeroboam the first. And he got all this business started about the worship that was going on there in Bethel. First Kings chapter 12 And I'm going to read a few verses here. Let's just start in verse 31. Now, we are talking about Jeroboam the first. He said, this says, He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. You see what's happening. An alternative place of worship. So he did at Bethel sacrificing to the cows that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priest of the high places that he had made. So he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his heart, And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. And now back to Amos chapter 9. He said, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorpost that the thresholds may shake. Strike it. The shaking, going all the way down into the foundation. And break them on the heads of them all. He said, I will slay the last of them with a sword. It would be fitting to think in terms of the altar, their Bethel. Because they were so far removed from proper worship. They were desecrating God's worship. And God says, I can only go on for so long. And then I will be done with that. And so the scene here reminds us of what happened with that judgment that came through Samson after he had been captured and blinded and he was put in chains and, and the destruction that came to the temple where he was after he used his master's strength to pull the pillars out and cause the thing to collapse and all the people died 
And that was a dramatic event, and a lot of people died. But the thing that is being depicted here is, is much more widespread and much more devastating than what was happening, uh, happened with Samson. Because what is being focused on here is that the northern kingdom itself is going to fall. The northern kingdom. That's interesting. Because it was, it was going to fall, never to rise again as an independent nation. It hasn't, and it won't. Because when God revives his people, he doesn't have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. It's just the land that he gave to his people. And so this devastation that's coming. And he says, so he breaks on the head in verse 1 in the middle. And break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. Then it says, he who flees, he will not get away. Fleeing, but not getting away. He who escapes from them shall not be delivered. That's the last part of chapter uh, 9, verse 1. And then he goes on to give some ideas to make vivid the enormity of what he's speaking, using these kinds of expressions, as if to say, in a rhetorical sense, what if? These things could be done in an effort to escape God. What if? And so here he says, what if they were to dig into hell? And I use the word Sheol, or the place of the dead. From there, he said, my hand will take them. Now, that's an interesting thing there. One of the things that I thought about when I was studying this, the idea, they talking about digging down into hell or the place of the dead. There are people, when I read about people who take their own lives, it's very, very sad indeed. But sometimes what people are thinking is that they can escape by taking their own lives. But if what they are doing is trying to hide from God, or from the way that God is trying to get their attention. They can't escape by going to the grave. It won't work. And so the better thing is, is to humble oneself before the almighty God and say, I'm a sinner, and I need the Savior you provided. And bow down and accept him. Because there is no escape from God by going into the grave. Then said, well, what if they could climb up into heaven? So now you see, you know, go to deep, deepest depth. Well, that, no, that can't work. But what about if we try the highest height? Heaven. He said, well, I will bring them down if they were able to do that. See, a rhetorical. What if they could do that? Even if they could get into a heavenly place in an effort to escape God. God says, that won't work either. I'll bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, 
Mount Carmel. Now, when we think about the geography of the northern kingdom and this Carmel, and I think that probably had the highest elevation, but it was also known as a place which had rough terrain, which had dense forest, which had numerous caves and caverns and things like that, so that it was a place where where the crooked people could go and hide and be unlikely to be discovered by those who were pursuing them. And what this Amos is saying is, even if in the effort to escape God they were able to hide in Mount Carmel, God says, from there I will search and take them. You can run and you can hide, but you can't escape from God. He said, though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea. Now we're back down low again. Up, down, up, down, as if to encompass all spatial relations in an effort to say there has to be some place some way, somehow, that I can escape God. And God says, well, you can try. It's not going to work, but uh, you can try. Now, in verse number four, it says, though they go into captivity before their enemies. Now, they might think now, as a captive, of, of the enemy, perhaps now I'm free from God getting after me because I'm in, a, I'm in a bad place, you know, a captive. But it says here, from there I will command the sword. You see that I will command the sword. This is God speaking. And it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them. For harm and not for good. This is really quite a devastating thing. But one of the things that we see here is this that there is no place and no way by which the wicked can hide from God. But there is another principle we know in scripture. And that is this. There is no way and no place that the righteous can be separated from God. People are in two categories. The wicked, if they remain that way, and the righteous, who will forever remain that way. Now, that doesn't mean that people who are righteous. Now, by righteous, we mean those who have come to have new life in Christ. They've understood they were sinners. They've understood that God provided salvation through his son, the only begotten. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, he's coming again. Those who have understood and embraced it and know him 
as Savior. They, there is nothing that can separate them from God. It can't happen. It doesn't mean they're not, not going to mess up here and there as they go on through this life. But that issue of separation from God is settled. I'm going to read from Romans. I'm saying this, but I want you to see that what I'm saying is a manner of expressing what the Bible actually does say. So in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, at verse 38, this is what the Apostle Paul says. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You notice that it says, and no other created thing. So in order for one to be separated, who is a righteous, a saved person, to be separated from God, what would have to be necessary? It would be, have to be necessary for God to do it himself. But God says he would never do it. And so it can't be done. And so running and hiding and trying to avoid the judgment of God a person can't exhaust their lives doing that. And many do. But they can't succeed at it. And that's what Amos is telling the people in the northern kingdom. And so when you think about it, and you think about God and how gracious and merciful and wonderful he is and how he said I don't do anything without telling my prophets what I'm about to do you remember the encounter that he had with, with Abraham when the angels came and they were going to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because the blood was crying out their wickedness was boiling over and it was time for their destruction and God told Abraham but in that account, we see that judgment does come. The time to get right with God is not without limits. The time to do that comes to an end. There was a reference here talking about the serpent. The serpent, and I mentioned the definite particle there. Uh, definite article. Uh, the uh, seed, the serpent. We, we think about it in Job, we talk about that Leviathan. Awesome creature. But God was the master of the creature. So what we have seen here then is the way these verses and the things that are listed here 
What are we seeing? What are we seeing about God? What do we see? It's a display, a grand display of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. He is all in all. He's all powerful. He is the master of those who are trying to escape from him. He is the master of the depths of the earth. He is the master of the heavens above. He is the master of the sea. He is the master of Mount Carmel. He is sovereign. And Amos, he comes and he says, Thus says the Lord. If the Lord is saying it, Amos is saying, I'm just a vessel, that's all. A vessel fitted for the master's use. That's what Amos is saying he is. And that's what we're supposed to be. And we try to be that. A vessel vessel fitted for the master's use. And I expressly use the word fitted, and not as we might read it directly, fit. Because fitted, because it is God who's fitting us. But then obviously we have a responsibility in it to work along with him and not to buck against him, to try the best we obey and not to say, well, you know, I think I have a better way, a better idea not to do those things. So this Amos and the messages he brings are very powerful. They were powerful for his audience, and they're powerful for us. It's the, the same God is speaking. But inasmuch as he has recorded and preserved this, it's for our learning and for our understanding, not just for them. And with that, I better close because our time has come to its end. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to you because we know that you work in us so that whatever desire we have to walk in the ways of the Lord is not from us, but from you, O God. And we ask you to multiply that within us and work the work of God to your glory, to your praise. We thank you. Amen.